Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century. If nobody sees me, do I still exist? Someone was heard asking this question recently, someone who, like the majority of the world, continues to spend every single day as if it is Groundhog Day. Evidently, even in the presumed safe confines of our homes, some of us are still grappling with questions of identity. But it's not really surprising if we think about how much our sense of self is defined by this globalized, highly connected and hyperactive world where visibility, be it in our workplace, at school or on our social media platforms, seem to be all defining. I sat down with Kenyan celebrity Ms. Julie Gishuru, one of the most recognized faces in Kenyan and African media, to talk about just that, identity. She was born to a Muslim Kashmiri father and a Catholic Kikuyu mother, later went on to study law in the UK before starting a career as a reporter in Kenya. I could not think of anyone better suited to help us unpack this complex, nuanced and multi-layered thing called identity in a day and age when we probably do not spend enough time learning or talking about it. With heartfelt candor and generosity, Julie Gishuru shares with us her incredibly rich journey so far understanding and appreciating her identity. I asked her about her Twitter bio where she describes herself as a mother, a wife, a change agent, a child of God, and an Afro-optimist. I did not, however, ask her whether she thinks we still exist if nobody sees us, but I have a strong feeling that by the end of this episode, we will have an answer. My name is Veda Sanasi, and welcome to another episode of In The Room. Um, hi, Julie. How are you doing? How's family? Hi, I'm well. Family's well. We're all locked down. Mm-hmm. Um, has it been hard for you staying put in one place like this for so long? It's really interesting, uh, Vida. You know, I'm a hibernator by nature. So I adjust very easily. And my life last year, I think I was in the air and out of Kenya, away from the family, 70, 75, 80% of the time. Um, so this is completely different and I'm loving it. I'm absolutely relishing this opportunity just to be with family and to work from home. I was just going to ask you, um, has the lockdown led you to come to certain you know, really important, powerful reflections or realizations that, you know, you haven't had in a while. Yeah, it has. And I think it's been a build-up. The things I've been thinking about. My uh, eldest two are, one is in university, one is just about to go to university. And I've been thinking a lot about education and about the value of that paper versus Mm -hmm. knowledge, Mm -hmm. learning, Mm -hmm. experience. Um, So it's almost like this slowdown is telling the world everything you've been doing and the way you've been doing it, what value really has it brought to you? Because once you slow down, you start to really understand the importance of relationships, the importance of basic understanding. I've started to like do more farming like we had grown some things i wasn't really paying attention to them now i am um and that that understanding of local whether it's farming systems whether it's development of 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 cottage industries you know i i just feel the world was running too fast and this is giving us an opportunity to rethink certain things. Do you feel like you were running too fast and you're pausing right now? Or is yes. work still making you, you know, still frenetic at the moment? Yes, I was running too fast. I'm still running, but I'm just running from home, <laughs> which is great. And I think in certain ways, running fast is not bad if you're strategically doing the right things. 
many of us have been running on the spot. So you're sweating, you're putting all the energy, and yet you're not transforming society in the way you need it to transform. You know, um, for us at MasterCard Foundation, what's so important is dignified work for young people. And uh, so, so, you know, you stop and think now in this new environment, you know, what does that mean? Where will we find it? What is the new normal? And were there things that we were doing previously that maybe were not as impactful as they could have been? And so I think it's a great opportunity to be able to just rethink and and to learn afresh. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I know we spoke briefly last week and I, and I sort of mentioned to you, uh, you know, what are some of the things that I, I would love for us to talk about? And, you know, as I was preparing for this interview, um, I was checking your Twitter, and I noticed that <laughs> in your bio, you describe yourself as an Afro-optimist, a wife, a mother, mm-hmm. a change agent, and a child of God. While you evidently and understandably have worn many hats over the years, um, I suppose we could even add broadcaster, content creator, entrepreneur, media <laughs> expert, and many others to this impressive list of hats. Um, and I hope we will be able to get uh, you to wear some of these hats in this conversation. But before we do that, I, I really have to ask, of all these hats that you wear, do you have a favorite? <laughs> it's it's so interesting because I, I don't see myself as defined by my career direction. I see myself defined, you know, by my being, my sense of, of, of purpose, my focus. And that's why I've never put any anything to do with my career on my profile. It doesn't define me. I wear many hats. I think the first one, you know, I end with child of God on my profile, but it's probably the most profound. Ultimately, I'm here because a being gave me the opportunity for life, right? So that's the first thing. Then change agent, because that's who I am. You know, for me, I'm the type of person when, you know, when you see a problem, you want to lean in. It's not even your problem. So one time driving past a guy who just fell on the road a few years ago, and I didn't know who he was, didn't stop the car, got out. Are you okay? A lot of people thought he was drunk. So we're walking past. I'm like, are you okay? What is it? Turned out that he was diabetic. And he had actually come from the village to meet his brother who worked at a construction site in that area. And he couldn't find his brother and just had a, a you know, he, he fainted. So got him to the hospital and, and got him help. But, uh, you know, the point is, I, I can't help myself. <laughs> if there's a paper on the ground, litter, I want to pick it up. So that's where the, the change agent comes from. And then, you know, I see myself as a mother. A uh, huge responsibility, um, and I love my role as a mother. And maybe the, one of the most important things I'll do in this earth will be leaving a legacy of children who I hope uh, <laughs> will do great things, right? And then a wife. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to my career, that's dynamic. That's dynamic. We go through seasons. That changes. And so that should never, to me, define who I am. It's it's just how I'm working in that phase. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then we will come <laughs> back to these seasons as you described then, and we'll come back to these many hats in a few. Uh, but I also wanted to talk to you about okay. something that is very often complex and messy, but which plays a very mm-hmm. critical role, not only in our understanding of self, but also um, in how it influences the choices that we make. And I'm talking about identity. Uh, now, you mm-hmm. were born to a Kashmiri father and a Kikuyu mother. Mm-hmm. And before we talk yeah. about how that affected the way you <laughs> built your identity, I, I would like for you to just take us back in time and tell us a bit more about your childhood and what was it like growing up as the daughter of a Kashmiri man and a Kikuyu um, woman? Yeah, I had an idyllic childhood, um, and I'm so thankful for that. Very interesting at a time when you would rarely see that kind of marriage happen. Intermarriage was not common, but intermarriage within the Asian and African community was even less common. Um, you know, my father was a bold man who mapped his own path, and at a tender age of about 19, fell in love with this 
incredibly beautiful African woman who he saw across the street literally and got his friend to introduce him. She was also very young, 18, I believe, at the time. And um, and he was her first boyfriend. She fell madly in love. And when he went home to ask for her hand in marriage, my grandfather, bless him, said, over my dead body... <laughs> And she threatened to elope. And because she was, she was, you know, she was much loved. So my grandfather said, no, no, no. Okay, fine. Let's figure this out. And and they accepted my father into their family. My father's family was less willing to, to, to go on this journey. <laughs> and so he was literally excommunicated for some years. But he joined the Kenya army. Um, and bought a piece of land next to my grandfather, my, my mother's father, and I grew up in an extended family. And I always say it's really interesting, you know, Catholic mother, Muslim father, you know, African mother, uh, Asian father, and yet there was so much love around me and so much understanding in, in my early years that I've always grown up to believe that there's more, there's more we have in common Mm-hmm. And we can always look at the commonalities, find them, and help help the differences feed um, better knowledge and understanding rather than division. So that's how I grew up. Eventually, at about the age of four, my grandmother, my grandfather on my father's side passed away. And my grandmother reconnected with my father. And then I had them in my life as well, my Asian family. And so um, that's how I grew up and thankful for it always believing that we can we can connect we can connect and we don't have to have differences divide us mm. you know i also grew up from a mixed uh, um, uh, family my my father is hindu my mother is muslim and my mom had oh to, my. my mother had to elope and i didn't see my my grandparents until i was the age of, of six um so the question about you ask you is something that i is, is quite personal and I, and I think I have an inkling of what the answer might be, but I'm just curious to know what was it like for you having to straddle these two different cultures growing up? Did you ever feel like you had to choose between one or the other? Yes. Wow, that's an interesting one, Vida, and I'd love your perspective as well. So for me growing up, I grew up in a place called Dagoretti in Nairobi. This is where we grew up next to my grandparents where they had a farm at the time. Now it's a completely, you know, city dweller land. But at that time it was a farm. And a lot of the kids in the area would come and look at me and laugh and call me a mzungu, white person. I mean, I'm clearly brown, but, you know, to them, you know, and they'd laugh and call me white person. So I, I didn't quite feel that I belonged there. And then when my Asian family came into the picture, there was a lot that was unsaid. Mm. So never an unkind word, but a lot of uh, layers mm-hmm. of, of things happening. So, and I could feel that. And I had to find myself, and it was at about 10, 11 years old. And then the third thing happening was um, getting abuse from some people because of my Asian background. Mm-hmm. So Muhindi, you know, mm-hmm. being called Muhindi or Indian, you know, mm-hmm. go back home. You know, getting that. So that was another layer of things ha- happening. Um, and at 11, 10, 11 years old, I said, you know, God made me with these cultures for a reason. And I'm going to love and accept my cultures in my own way. And how other people see them mm-hmm. or decide to interpret them is their problem. I love the diversity that's been given to me and I want to use it in a positive way. So I literally, as a child, had to train my mind to accept both parts of myself because there was too much going on externally. How, how did you deal with it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was about to ask you around what age do, do you feel like you, you kind of got a sense of um, ownership of, of how you were defining your identity? I, I mean, at least in my case, it, it took me a very long time, actually all the way up to my mm-hmm. probably mid-20s when I was in, you know, in mm-hmm. college when I really kind of had time to pause and process identity, right? You know, because it's, it, it mm. is so so complex. Um, I suppose I, my, I was very lucky in that my father, for instance, even though 
he clearly had issues with the fact that my mother's parents had sort of, you know, given up on her for a decade. Uh, so he felt very strongly mm-hmm. about that. Um, but despite that, he never kind of, you know, forced us to not really embrace, um, you know, our maternal heritage, right? And wow. and I think um, what it led me to 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 do is actually sort of very early on kind of went on a journey of just understanding what the hell did it mean to be half Muslim and half Hindu? You know, <laughs> I was obviously raised Hindu, but, um, you know, on, 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 on my mom had converted when she got married. So, so, you know, didn't really quite experience that. But then um, going to my grandmother's place for the very first time and seeing this woman who was, you know, wearing a headscarf and hugging mm-hmm. me and, seeing the paintings on the wall, I could clearly see this is a culture that I was just not familiar with. So I was very curious to know because to what you said earlier, I felt so much love from my grandparents, despite the fact that probably because we were separated for, for, for a long time and, and they felt mm-hmm. like they had to sort of compensate. Um, I was just very, that, that love just made me very, very curious to know them. And, and I remember just spending time with my grandfather and he would tell us stories about you know, when he fought in World War II, when he was, you know, stationed mm-hmm. in Egypt and all of that. So, so that kind of like curiosity to learn my mother's culture um, was always there, which I think influenced me in ways that um, I didn't realize until later. It just sparked an incredible amount of curiosity in me to just like figure out, you know, because it was never linear. It was never, you know, black or white. It was always so many layers of, of, of something, right? Like you, you knew you were right. more than just, you know, you go to school and the kids are like, ah, you're the kid whose mother is Muslim. And then you're like, uh-huh. And, and you okay. know, so you, you kind of feel like you got <laughs> yeah. to figure, figure that out, right? So, so yeah, yeah, I'm curious to know, like, how, what role did yeah. your parents play in sort of helping you figure out your identity? And, and secondly, um, how did it actually, you know, influence the, the young adult that you became at that time? Yeah. Ah, that's an interesting one. So my mom was pivotal, is pivotal. Um, And she she was a strong, but um, very refined, quiet, you know, not in your, you know, not in your face. So I was brought up Catholic. She was very religious. So that, you know, definitely a big part of who I am, made sure I went into her school system, which was the Loreto system, uh, the sisters of Loreto, who are a big part of my identity till today. Um, I laugh in many ways and say, you know, I could wear the habit and feel completely comfortable. You know, it's part of my identity that I connect with those sisters. Um, I read a lot and my mom really introduced me to the world of reading. And in so many ways, she opened the world up to me. And and um, and I love that. For my dad, he kind of took a step back approach. He he was a military man, a no nonsense man, but in the home, very very doting and very loving. Um, and I think decided, you know what? There are too many layers here. I'm gonna let them grow up Catholic. I'm gonna not step in too much into the soft area. All right. But I remember as a teenager, one day he sat down, I was making a decision about changing schools. And he said, Julie, he said, ultimately, you have to understand that you make your bed and you sleep on the bed that you make. Mm -hmm. So I will allow you to make your decisions as long as you know that you have to live with. So make the right decisions. And in, in so many ways, that was how he approached life. And, and I think that's how he shaped who I am. He gave me the independence and the ability to understand free thinking, but the consequences also <laughs> of free thinking. So that, that was really interesting. He was, he was smart, I think, to step back from the hard issues, mm. to not push too hard on some of those issues. Some may question it, but I'm thankful that he did not come on strong on religion, you know, and, 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 and on, on things of that kind, but definitely had high expectations for me. And I, I, I wanted to live up to his expectations. And I always say, you know, for girls, they will always look for a man and model that man to their father. 
And I thank my father very, very much for setting a standard that, you know, was extremely high. Uh, a strong man, but a man who was willing to let me map my path and support me, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's it's interesting. I've never thought about it, but that's how they both kind of influenced my life. And, and around what time, maybe I'm fast-tracking your life a little bit here, but around what time did you make the decision <laughs> to go study law in the UK and, and, and what role did parents play in that, if at all? I made that decision quite early, I think 10, 11. I, I, as I told you, I was a reader. And, you know, for a while, I wanted to be... so funny. When I was really young, I wanted to be a TV anchor. And people would laugh and say, you'll never be on TV. So I gave up on that. And then I wanted to be a journalist for a while. And I thought about it and thought, you know what? I, I really love these legal dramas and legal stories that I read. And so maybe not journalism, maybe law. It's so funny because I ended up doing all of those, right? Um, so I started talking about law at about 10, 11. And my father loved it. And he kept saying, you're going to go do the bar in the UK. You're going to go do the bar at Lincoln's Inn. I don't know why he had this thing with Lincoln's Inn in the UK. And at um, when I finished high school, I was all set doing my university applications. An interesting story. My dad comes home with a young man, drops him at home and drives away. So I come downstairs. There's a young man I don't know in the house. I'm a bit puzzled. Like, hello, hello. Says, your dad brought me to talk to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm 18. I'm like, huh? I'm like, about what? So he says, oh, you know, um, my family was thinking maybe we could ask for your hand in marriage. And maybe I said, oh, hold up. <laughs> my dad and I have a plan. So I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to law school. I'm going to university. I'm going to do the bar. Where can I drop you? My father had taught me to, to drive at 16. Uh -huh. So I was like, he's dropped you here. Where can I drop you? Is there somewhere I can drop you so you can, you know? And I took him and dropped him. And my dad came home. He said, no, Julie, I just wanted you to see because, you know, in our culture, this is what we do. And I looked at my dad and I said, dad, but we had a plan. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a plan. And a few years ago, he reminded me that I said to him, dad, just take a chance on me. I won't let you. I won't let you down. Let me do this. And it's so fascinating because I keep asking myself, even the most modern of parents mm -hmm. can go right back, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah. So, I, I, I thank God I did end up going to law school. <laughs> so, at the risk of fast-tracking your life again, you had dreamed about <laughs> um, uh, being a broadcaster, yet you settled on going to law school and yet, you found yourself eventually <laughs> as one of the most recognized faces on Kenyan TV as a broadcaster. Please explain mm -hmm. that transition. <laughs> I think God laughs from the heavens when he looks down at us. He, he, he must laugh. I, I finished law. I really enjoyed law. Um, I thought I would be inclined to do criminal law, but I detested criminal law and I really enjoyed commercial law, which is really strange. So I did an MBA uh, with a focus on world trade law and international business. Then I came back to Kenya and everywhere I went, they said, you're overqualified. There are no jobs. You're overqualified. There are no jobs. I was told you need contacts. If you don't have contacts, You'll never get a job anywhere. And I was giving, you know, my CV to the World Bank, to the UN, to every, every I, I, I think I must have handed out over 50 CVs. And one day I just thought to myself, I was watching TV and I thought, I can do that. I could report. I could, I could do that well. So I just walked into KTN, one of our media houses, and I asked for a screen, you know, can I do a screen test? And they said, we do them every Thursday, come next Thursday. I went on Thursday, I did a screen test. They called me on Friday and said, can you start on Monday? Wow. Yeah. On Monday, I went in and I was like, how come you asked me back? You know, and they said, you've, you've got business and you've got law and we have huge problems on our business desk and with our legal reporting. So I started reporting from the courts. 
And that's how my career started. I needed money, Veda, I needed money. I was living with my grandmother. My parents had divorced at that time. My mom had emigrated. My father had a new family. I was living with my grandmother back in Dagoretti where I grew up um, in the old, old house. And, and I couldn't rely on her for money. I needed to, to, to be able to earn my own. So that's why I ended up walking into that media house and by God's grace got a job. And we are all grateful for that. Um, how were the early days as a oh, in reporter? Tough. <laughs> Look, work as a reporter, work in the media is tough anyway. And it doesn't matter if it's early days or, or you know, after, after you know, some level of career success. Yeah. The early days are a struggle. The early days are just trying to get your story um, on the news or story. First of all, you want your story to run. Then you want your story within the top five. Then you want your story number one, you know, That's, so it's this journey. Um, but typically uh, my life was leave the house at 7 a.m., and come back at 10, 30, 11, sometimes 12, because you've done the full day of reporting. And then I was actually asked to do some anchoring quite early. And the news is at 9 p.m. So, I mean, it's just, it was a slog. It was a slog, but I slog. So I wanted to make a transition. Um, we've talked okay. a bit about, you know, some parts of what you've, mentioned in your in your bio on your twitter bio but i want to come to um wife and mother and you mentioned how important mm-hmm. that is for you earlier at what point in your life did that part happen yeah um 26 years old i came back from the uk i had done my degree i had worked for a year i had done my masters and came back and met my husband, became friends, and just, yeah, there was, I actually really didn't want to stay in Kenya. I thought I'd be here for a short while and go back to the UK or go to the US. And no, so we met and uh, I fell madly in love. And and yeah, we we have had five children. We lost our third born. You know, the most difficult thing, thank you, most difficult thing um, you can experience in life. Um, But, you know, my eldest now is uh, is an adult. (laughs) My daughter is, my second born is an adult. The other two are getting there really fast. So it's been, but it feels like it was yesterday. It's crazy because it feels like it was yesterday. So that was 26 and that was, wow, 20 years ago. So these two hats, mother and wife, do they ever come into conflict or competition with all these other hats that you have to wear? And when they do, which hats typically win? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question. And it's interesting because, you know, parents have to earn a living. So there's part of that whole aspect of needs, needs to look after your children and then at the same time there's needs around parenting and time quality time etc so when we lost our third born um, I did continue to work hard I worked very very hard in in my career as as you heard you know it's morning to night right Um, however I would come home at certain points, for instance, from 4 to 6 p.m. to breastfeed my children, to look after them, make sure they had their dinner, then I'd have to go back to the office. After we lost our thirdborn, my husband and I just had a rethink in the way we look at things. And we just realized there's some things you do not compromise on, you know. And sadly, there are very many organizations that in the past, I think this will change moving forward, do not understand the importance of parenting, and of building strong families just to contribute to a better society. Um, And for women in particular, it can be very hard to put your foot down, you know, in offices and say, hey, hold on a minute. This is not not negotiable. But I learned how to say that. I learned how to say, this is where my red line is. And you'll have 200% of my, my, my effort. 
but it doesn't all have to be delivered in the office. And there's some ways that, you know, I, I, I can, I need flexibility. My children and my family come first. And I think it's not just a thing for women. I think in society, generally, we have to learn how not to be frightened, embarrassed, ashamed about saying that. It is, in fact, a noble and amazing thing. And there's nothing wrong with working smart. So yes, are there times they, they come in conflict? Yes. But draw your lines, draw your lines, know where your lines are. And then with the children and with hubby, you know, making sure it's a team effort. So when I'm traveling, like I have to report to my 10 year old when I used to travel, it's him who would okay my calendar. So him first, and then I discuss it with hubby, but him feeling like he has the opportunity to question, is this really important? What are you doing here? Okay. And when are you back? And gives him a feeling of confidence he feels loved. He feels like he's part of So there are tools you can use also to make sure that they feel like you're not excluding them from your world, but allowing them some decision making, even in your own world of work, you know. So and I hope that's helpful for someone out there. Yeah. <laughs> and as a, as a mother raising um, children, do you feel like it is important for you to raise your children, including your boy, um, as feminists? Yeah, I, 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 you know, what is feminism? Sometimes people misunderstand that word and therefore it gets a lot of negative flack, you know. Um, and so I may not use the word feminist, but I want them to grow understanding the importance of equality. And I want them to grow understanding they should be champions for those who need voices supporting them those who need a hand lifting them up. And that's, you know, so so the gender question is, it's a tough one, you know, Veda, mm. because our society is, it's crazy. So there are times, you know, I'm with the young ones and I, I've thought I've brought up these champions for, mm. for the girl as well. And something will be said and I go, what? I say, girls, girls are like this or girls are like that. And I have to go, but your mama's a girl. And then they go, oh, yeah, mama's, and mama's not like that. Okay, okay, I get it. It's a conscious everyday battle. It's a conscious everyday battle to raise men who stand up for women, but also to raise women who stand up for women. <laughs> and even for me, you know, understanding that there are things that I was stopping my daughter from doing that I had allowed her elder brother to do at the same age. And watching her look at me. And one day she just walked out of the room. She asked to go somewhere. And I was like, there's no way at this age, whatever. And I just saw her shoulders. I just saw her shoulders fall as she walked. And I had to call her back and say, oh, my God. And then I realized you allowed your son to do the same things that you're saying she can't do. So it's a constant struggle, all of us, for all of us. And it's just the nature of society, right? So... But yes, my greatest hope is that they will be champions for the women in their lives. But I also hope the women in their lives will be champions for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely. And, and the reason I asked the question is precisely because of the significant gender issues in Kenya and across the continent and the world, mm -hmm. right? And I wonder mm -hmm. how much of that has to do with efforts and deliberate authentic efforts in parenting to really make sure that the the newer generations are actually really thinking about this in a in a very thoughtful and educated way in ways that at least in my experience i was not taught you know to really be mindful yeah. of, of of some of these issues right so i'm not a parent which is why i was asking you this question as a parent <laughs> what um you know what does yeah. that entail right to, to to create this kind of awareness in in, in the youth a lot. It entails a lot. And maybe my final word on this would be, you know, there's no there's there's no book to parenting that captures everything we need to know. But on this gender issue in African and Asian communities, maybe even more so. Maybe it's even more of a challenge. And and if we if we had greater support in understanding the the knowns and the unknowns around this we would do much better, but I think we will struggle for a while to come 
because we don't have this guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Sticking to your Twitter bio, I wanted to ask you a few questions about <laughs> um, something else that you've put in there. Um, when I talk about your, your journey as a Kenyan, um, but also as an Afro-optimist. So you're clearly a very proud mm -hmm. Kenyan. You've done your fair share of fostering dialogue in the country. Um, I remember for your show, Voices of Reason, you know, in a country where ethnic identity very often rivals one's own national identity and given your own mm -hmm. mixed ethnicity growing up, what was the journey for you um, of developing that strong Kenyan identity? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think the Kenyan identity comes easy to us because it was inculcated very carefully by... Um, by the education system, and I think in general by the regime that was in place, the, the, the Moy regime. I think, you know, it was something that was done, and I think many African countries actually did this very successfully. They inculcated this feeling of national pride and patriotism, and so you'll find a lot of Kenyans tap into that very, very easily. It comes easy, but when you go beyond that to try to, to define what do we see as Kenyan, how do you see yourself in this Kenyan ecosystem or world? You know, tribal, ethnic, religious identities, those are difficult conversations that we tend not to have in a civil manner. Um, and that's problematic. But the Kenyan identity comes to us very easily and Kenyans are very proud. And there's something, let me say two things about us. You know, we're very proud of our national identity. And that's, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's in many ways has brought us together and has taken us through, you know, crises that other countries maybe may not have come through. Yeah. And it's brought us through to those together. But the other thing about it is we are a very adaptive people. We are a very generous people. So when we find there's a need, we step up and we rise and we meet. And those are good things about us. And I think, you know, the difficult journey we have, Vida, is defining from an ethnic and a religious point of view. And now even from an age perspective. So other demographics are coming into play. And sometimes, and now even from an age perspective, you know, there's some dynamics there that are coming into heavy play from a class perspective. You know, who are we? Um, what is our future together as a nation? Are we really together? Um, and those are tough questions, but I think applies across the continent. And, and I think it's one of the reasons you and I are talking about identity specifically today is because it is getting more and more complicated in this globalized world where, you know, you've got other layers and flavors of who you are as a liberal, as a um, progressive, as, a, you know, parent. And, you know, so, and I think it is important to talk about these things because yet again, going back to our own personal journeys that we were just talking about earlier and just how difficult it is growing up trying to figure out wait, but what exactly am I and I think mm. I hope you will agree with me that once you do figure out your identity and suddenly the path forward just becomes so much clearer right you just yeah. you know you just know like this is what I stand for this is who I am this is what I care about this is who I care about and I want to do something about mm. it right but I do wonder um, if if all of us get the opportunity to really grapple with these nuances of our identity versus when we get sucked into some sort of polarized sense of who we are. And we're seeing that polarization right. across the world today, right? Whether it is here in Kenya, whether it is across the continent of Africa, whether it is in the West, whether it is in America, whether it's in Europe, right? And it's incredibly frightening. It's incredibly alarming to see, you know, and, and it's like a frequency that just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And you wonder, you know, at what point can we, you know, can things level out? Can where where will we find some peace? <laughs> and 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 um and why does it have to be so fractured? You know, it's it's really difficult. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. you just wonder at what point are we going to just appreciate the commonalities that we have? You know, just the common mm -hmm. denominator that we all human beings, if only we could settle on that one. <laughs> as our yeah. most salient identity, wouldn't it be just a tad bit easier, right? 
And you said, you know, are we able to delve into those nuances of our identity? And the problem is we are not. And it comes back to this education system that's just black and white. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, it erases our history. It rewrites history. So, you know, there's ma- many problems for Africa. You know, people who discovered Lake Victoria or who discovered, you know, I mean, this whole, and we need a complete rethink, you know, around, around, first of all, understanding where our communities have come from, then understanding what are, who, who are we, what are, you know, where do we sit in our communities today, but then also understanding that I don't have one identity. You don't have one. We all have multiple things we connect to that form our identities and allowing them to sit within ourselves comfortably. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Speaking about those multiple layers of identity, what I found interesting in, in yours and in the way that you have defined yourself in your bio is that, you know, it's not about just being Kenyan. You talk about being an Afro-optimist. So I'm curious to know, first of all, at what point... Um, and how did this sort of supranational pan-African identity of yours came about? Um, and, and what does it mean for you to be an Afro-optimist? And why is that important? Interesting one. Um, I think we've always cared, as Africans, we've always cared about this continent. But I think, you know, our conversations, our media disconnect us from each other. You know, our countries and our, our national focus disconnects us from each other. I remember as a child watching the news on apartheid South Africa and looking at my mother and saying, how can that happen? What is that? You know, why can't they be free? And and my mother saying, you know, one day it will happen, but I doubt it will happen in our lifetime. And I always come back to watching Nelson Mandela, you know, in the early 90s, first of all, walk out, you know, of, of, of this, you know, this prison system, and then watched him inaugurated and become president and thinking, oh, my goodness, it's happened in my lifetime, you know, and it matters to me. I uh, went to a high school that had a lot of different African students. And I think that really helped start to open up my understanding of the continent. And in my media career, as I started to grow and get opportunity to think of what I wanted to focus on, I just had this push towards Africa. I had this push towards understanding more about Africa, first of all, and then also towards making Africans proud of their Africanness, which I felt was lacking, um, and making us understand that there's nothing wrong with being African. We're not more corrupt than anybody else. Humans are corrupt. Corruption thrives in different ways in different environments. You know, we're not, you know, we are actually incredible because in spite of so much being taken from the continent, in spite of really challenging environments, we are resilient, we have grit, we are innovative, we survive. In some cases, communities are able to thrive in spite of all the challenges. And that's not something that we should take for granted. So I just, I felt there were untold stories and there were stories of inspiration that we needed to tap into. And I started to ask myself, how do you play a role there? And and that's how you know, that started to open up for me. But I believe in African pride. Afro-optimism is, is about being mm-hmm. proud and, and it's about honoring that, that hard and harsh history, but, but not losing your humanity and your dignity, and, which I presume is, is why you do the work that you do now, which is about, you know, dignified work, right? Right, absolutely, absolutely. And there's so much around us that we can learn from and take from. We can be inspired by, right? And um, as long as we first understand that, that's the first step. And then the second step is to say, I can, and to do it. And sometimes people just need, you just need a hand, or you just need to see somebody else who's done it to believe you can. And we can. We absolutely can. Now, Julie, it would be unfair of me not to mention that in your bio, you've also put Soaring Eagle and Excelsior. And I'm not <laughs> sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I believe it's uh, Latin for ever upwards. Is that what it means? 
Yes, yeah. yes, it does. It does. And um, tell us more about these. Are, are these are these <laughs> values? Are these values? Are these values that are in that an integral part of with values, which are obviously an integral part of our identity? But are, are these values that you mm-hmm. um, subscribe to, live by, or aspire to live by? So, soaring eagle is just a reference to my childhood approach to life. I loved cowboys and Indians, and I used to play it with. A boy. I had a lot of male cousins. I had no female cousins my age so me and the boys always used to play cowboys and indians and i always wanted to be the indian although we always lost even in the movies but i always wanted to i always wanted to be the underdog right and loved the culture and richness of american indians and so i i and then i i saw myself i see myself or i want to see myself as a soaring eagle and the idea is that you keep keep growing keep learning keep keep searching right? Keep pushing the limits, right? Um, and an eagle, which is such a strong bird, you know, in so many ways. Um, and then Excelsior refers to um, Stan Lee, who is the creator of Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. who, for me, the whole world of Marvel Comics is inspiration in itself. And I think Marvel Comics represents the fact that the people who sit on the margins, right, the marginalized, the hope around them, you know, um, creating superheroes of ourselves. You know, I, I really believe in that. I believe humans are superheroes. And then the final piece, I have peace on my, <laughs> with, I, I with this sign. <laughs> <laughs> the sign of peace, which is from um, Star, Star Trek. Trek yeah. Um, yeah, which is from Star Trek, uh, Spock in mm-hmm. Star Trek, which I always was moved. So you'll see, I, I'm quite a, my mind likes to revolve around creative things to 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 inspire, mm. and so I hold on to those things to be almost a guiding light for me. You know, since you mentioned, I I, re- I really hope people don't play cowboy and Indians anymore because there's so many things <laughs> that are problematic about this as around a game that? for children. Right? It's just uh, since we're talking about identity, <laughs> I'm just realizing right now, just like you know, the the, the yes, the. it was fun though it was fun though (laughs) yeah um so if soaring eagle is 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 part of that identity um and and an eagle flies high and an eagle is strong as a bird um where Mm -hmm. is julie flying towards nowadays what are the big projects of change making that you're involved in yeah, very interesting. So uh, very privileged and humbled to be asked to join the MasterCard Foundation last year. I had done some work with them uh, previously and, and accepted a position late last year um, to head the public affairs and communications um, function. Our focus is young people. And in Africa, we understand the lack of opportunity for young people, it's immense. And we see it as one of the existential crises of our time, that we must indeed find a way to help young people find their place. Um, education is a big part of this. Um, financial access as well is a big part of this. But even when we talk about education, it's rethinking education. And there's some exciting things happening with the Africa Leadership Group, Vida, as you know very, very well which we're super excited about. Um, So our journey is to try to ensure that millions of young people on the African continent, 30 million access dignified work by 2030. We also work with young people in indigenous communities in Canada, which is where we are registered. And um, again, it's enabling them to access education and, and, and opportunity. And this is where most of our work focuses. And I'm excited about it. I feel like young Africans and young indigenous Indians in Canada as well, there are very many commonalities, but they've got energy. They've got will. They've got drive. They're actually more idealistic than many of us older people. So they see the world in a far better way. And so often they, they in a live much that more Afro-optimism equitable. better than us in many ways, don't they? They do, they do, they do. And they live it with more of an equity mm. than the rest of us. You know, you get jaded as you get older. 
and just the opportunity to listen, to understand, and to act to help these young people find their space is a huge challenge, a great responsibility, and a humbling opportunity. And that is my that is my journey right now. That is that is my what soaring eagle needs to to <laughs> to, to, to soar towards. Yeah, yeah, and not 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 doing it for them, but understanding that young people will do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. But they just need whether it's the door opened or a helping hand. Um, we want to be that friend walking by their side, helping them to achieve their dreams. Julie, before we bring this conversation to a close, I want to ask you this question. If you could summarize your journey, um, the future, all of it in just this one small phrase, Julie's life mission is... Wow. To walk into the light. Here on earth, to walk into the light. And certainly when I go to where I belong, because I really believe I'm just a visitor here. I came from somewhere else and I'm going to go back there one day. And so for the next life, it's to walk into the light. And what does it entail on earth to walk into the light or towards the light? It does not entail perfection. It entails trying. It entails doing the best you can with what you have where you are. That means the knowledge you have. That means your access to various different tools. Um, it's doing the best you have with goodwill. And trying to do good does not mean being perfect because none of us are perfect. But trying, trying. And you will say mission accomplished when? <laughs> it's when I go. I hope, hey, that's my tombstone, right? Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Although, although I don't want, I don't want to be in a tomb. I definitely want to be. Um, I want to be incinerated. Uh, I, I want to be, mm-hmm. you know, back to go back to nature. And so, I won't have a tombstone. But if people remember me, let them remember mission accomplished. That will be great. In your biography, <laughs> we'll make sure that it says yeah. mission accomplished. Judy, I cannot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you enough for this wonderfully candid and thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with me and with our audience. Um, can't wait to have a chat with you again. And I'm sure there's a number of other oh, amazing thank you. things we can talk about. Thank you. I've loved it. Thank you so much, Vidal. Join us next time in The Room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.